Ayan Hirshi Ali. Welcome to the Free Tanke podcast. Krista, uh, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, you have uh, your your book uh, Prey has just been published in Sweden. In the name, it's called Villebrod in Swedish, which is actually what Prey means. Um, before we talk about this specific Swedish situation, how has this book been um, received internationally? What's your responses? Uh- There is a very clear response where in the U.S., because it's not seen as a major problem, mm-hmm. um, and I'll explain further on why that is, it's barely made a ripple, whereas in Europe, it's been received very well in the countries where it was published in Denmark. I think it made it even to number one on the bestseller list. Mm. In Germany, it was uh, on the bestseller list for four weeks And in Sweden, I don't think I've ever spoken to so many Swedish journalists in my life. <laughs> <laughs> And that's good. That's very good. Yes, you've been on a lot of different podcasts. I, I know that. <laughs> yeah, but also a lot of just ordinary Swedes who, and and I think I, it's it's been a number of Swedes who had inspired me. And to carry on with the project, and and they're immigrant Swedes. That's another thing that I think is very interesting. Hmm. But but it, it, can you try to explain to me what kind of driving force in yourself is making you going on with these questions? I mean, how has that developed in you? I mean, I know about your background. Of course, but yes. how come that you devote your life to these questions instead of something completely different? Well, I would say maybe on a very, very personal level, I uh, benefited from coming to what I still hope is the free world. Mm. Uh, and uh, so I landed in '92 in the democracy of. Germany and was there for a few days and then went to the Netherlands and uh, my life in the Netherlands was of course challenging for an immigrant on Mm. a personal level you have to learn the language and the customs and things like that but it's uh, the message I got across every day was your life as an individual it's up to you how you live it Mm. and it's up to society to allow you to live it as best you can Mm. And I think that message resonates with me on a personal level every day, even more so in the U.S. Mm. And I find it difficult to sit still and be silent when I notice that this is being constrained for women, for children, for the vulnerable in in general, for people who come from societies that are not free and then they come to the free societies and they're put in all sorts of categories that they don't like or don't want to be in. And and then I get, uh, I don't know how you call it, uh, inspired sometimes, uh, sometimes just annoyed. Uh, Someone should say something. And Mm. and then I think, then I should say it. When, if you look at the subject of prey, the conversations about what was happening to women and how the streets were changing for women in the streets of Europe uh, and how this was affected by immigration, they were national conversations. Let's be honest about that. There were conversations people were having in their dining rooms, in their backyards and on their Facebook and uh, sort of uh, semi-private internet platforms. Mm. But they, 
it, it was very difficult for them to come out and say things are changing and they're not changing in a good way for women. Let's do something about it. And I thought, well, I'll do it. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and the intention, honestly, Krista, was it's not, I don't expect to change the world or I don't expect you know, any of these grand and grandiose things. I just want people to have these conversations and value freedom and reason and science and objectivity the way I have come to value it. Yes. How, can I ask you, when you came to the Netherlands, how old were you when you came to that country? I was 22 years old, hmm. um, but I had the, I would say maybe the social emotional development of a five-year-old. Uh-huh. Uh, in the financial development of maybe someone who's 10 years old. Mm-hmm. I had to learn so much so quickly. And you I was di- 22 years old. And you didn't speak so, English at that time at all? No, I spoke English. I did go to school in Nairobi, Kenya. And in Kenya, the national language is English. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. And so when you go to school, you're taught in English. Mm. But I lived with a Muslim family, and as a, if you're a female living within a Muslim, average Muslim family like mine, mm. you're not expected to be independent. So that's not what you are uh, trained for. You know, that's not how you are brought up. Well, and so, on so many different levels, I had I, it's, it wasn't only learning the language in Holland when I was 22. It was learning so many other things that seemed incredibly impossible. Was was there any specific persons or maybe specific books that opened your eyes to to another way of living and and, and dreaming for yourself, so to speak? What influenced well, in you? Ter- yeah, in terms of persons, when I was in 1992, when I came to the Netherlands, mm. in terms of persons, the ordinary Dutch men and women who worked at the Asylum Seeker Asylum Seeker Center, the people who came from the village of Luntren and Ede, who came to volunteer at the center, and they volunteered to teach us. And they came, you know, they were volunteers recruited from, for instance, the nearby church uh, or the nearby community center or something like that. These people came and they volunteered. And I learned so much from them. And if you say, what is the easiest and most productive path to assimilation into a society? I think it's that, it's through that. These were the individuals who opened their homes, um, their hearts uh, to me. And they answered all of my questions. They found out how awkward I was when I, there was so much I didn't know. And they had all this patience to teach me. And this is why I keep saying it's more than just the language. They volunteered to teach the language, mm. but they taught me much, much more than the language. And then in terms of books, I would say on, an, on a very intellectual level, when I went to the University of Leiden, I loved reading uh, the books that were assigned for political philosophy. Uh, I loved reading John Stuart Mill, and mm-hmm. I, I read a lot of Karl Popper. I read a lot of um, Friedrich Hayek, The Road to Serfdom. Uh, and there were many, many other books, but those books stand out because of the controversies that they generated in their own time. Uh, and, and the reasoning is so clear. You know, John Stuart Mill 
1869 on the subjection of women. Yeah. Uh, when I was reading that, I thought, but it almost seems as if he's writing about East Africa and uh, the Middle East, you know, uh, the Muslim world, and he's not writing about England. <laughs> no. But then what England was in 1869, in for the, you know, look at Afghanistan and under the yeah. Taliban, the women are even, it's they're even worse off than England 1869. Yeah, certainly so. He, he It felt like he's, he was writing about these areas in present time, you mean? Yes, mm. for a lot of women, yeah. Millions and millions of women, yeah. <clears throat> And then, and then, Krista, this mm. is interesting. So he's writing in 18, this uh, essay in 1869. Mm. And um, I'm in Europe, and at that point, I'm traveling around in Europe. I hadn't been to the U.S. yet. This is between 1995 to the year 2000. Mm-hmm. And all these women are so free, and all the things that John Stuart Mill was campaigning for in 1869 these women have it and they take it for granted. So this is a, these are generations that are born into the kind of freedom that some of us can only dream about. Yeah. And still, I, I, I thought, oh, do they realize really how lucky they are, how fortunate they are? Um, and many of them did. And then now, fast forward to, we're having this podcast in 2021. Some of these rights and freedoms that these women took for granted are being challenged. And I'm surprised by um, how little the effort is that women are putting up in in their organized groups as in feminists, how little effort they're putting up to maintain, to, to, you know, preserve the freedoms that they inherited. Hmm. And also they very often doesn't dare to stand up for women's rights in a Muslim context or in these countries as well. That I think, yes, that is the most, um, I'll say confounding problem that um, women, feminists in the West have convinced themselves or they have been convinced that there is a feminism for white Western women and a feminism for other people. Mm. And instead of, you know, embracing the idea that freedom is a universal concept, Mm. regardless of where you are born, regardless of your skin color, regardless of the religion you were born into, and that if you throw it away as a universal concept and you make it... uh, parochial, you make it relative, then you will find that in the end, none of us are free because it can always be challenged and it will always be challenged. Yeah. And it's also a quite racist idea to say that it's only for white women in the West, uh, the liberty of women. So the women who explain to me why they are reticent, why they are reluctant to um, share what they have with women from the developing world, Mm. they say that they've also been taught to respect other people's religions and cultures and boundaries. And they just feel insecure when it comes to, you know, starting these conversations. They say, what should we do? Should we knock on people's doors? I mean, they feel so inhibited. 
And so in a way, it is coming from a good place because their inhibition is not to deny these women rights. Their inhibition is only to say, you're welcome. We, we, we accept you. We accept you with whatever you bring, your culture, your religion, your everything. And, and then, but then they're uncomfortable with some of the misogyny um, that they can observe empirically, you know, that mm. is being done in the name of these cultures. And this inhibition has, I think, for a lot of feminists, it has presented, um, I would say, maybe I, I call it cognitive dissonance, where, you know, yeah. you, you, you should be doing something, but you can't, and then you get conflicted, and then you end up by just saying, I'm going to withdraw from the whole issue altogether. Mm. Yeah. Um, okay, so w when you came to the Netherlands in the age of 22, did you at that time consider yourself a Muslim woman? Very much so. Okay. Very much so. I was Muslim. I believed. I believed in heaven and in hell. I had run away from home. Mm. Uh, I had run away from the man that I was forced to marry. And I was convinced I was going to burn in hell because Allah would be so angry with me. Mm -hmm. And the only way, again, talking of dissonance, the only way mentally that I could, um, you know, avoid going mad, really, mm. <laughs> was to stay away from fellow Somalis and fellow Muslims who would remind me of the sin that I had committed. Uh, fellow Somalis who would point to me You have to cover yourself. You have to pray five times a day. You have to return to the straight path. But I avoided all contact as much as I could mm -hmm. with, uh, with fellow Somalis. I only worked as a translator, first as a volunteer, and then later on uh, I was paid for translating and interpreting. And it was very interesting because when I was an interpreter, um, I was then given uh, a small window into these individual lives and the choices they were making, um, the, the cultural differences, the fact that you have to depend on someone else to translate for you. And that is such an invasion of privacy. And so when I left a translation session, I always felt that I had made the right choice to go and be independent. Yeah. But if I socialized with fellow Somalis, you know, you greet one another and they say, maybe you should come over for a cup of tea. And then I got all these sermons, these lectures. Uh, Ayan, you are such a good person, but you're still not covering yourself. You know, you can go to hell. When was the last time you prayed? Those were the times I found so difficult that I would just sneak out, thank for the tea, and never be seen by that person again. <laughs> I see. But that must have made you quite lonely, I guess. Did you feel lonely at, at that time in the new country? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yes. I felt lonely. And I think it is a phase. And even to this day, there are, um, I'll say, moments of homesickness and uh, some, some kind of uh, longing for something that was in... Uh, my youth, or maybe I romanticize it. I think that's more closer to the truth. 
But the loneliness, uh, which is a big problem when it comes to moving from where you are born, uh, knowing you will almost never go back there and that you have to build a life for yourself somewhere else. The loneliness becomes really part of your life. It becomes part of your identity. Your new community, my new community, the friends I made, I had a boyfriend, um, I had fellow students, I had colleagues, everybody I came across, I thought was welcoming and warm and went out of their way to try and get rid of this loneliness. Mm. But it's hard and you won't get rid of it. And I think part of it, part of maybe survival and, and thriving in a new environment is to accept that loneliness. Yeah, I see what you mean. But I mean, still, are there, I know there is a lot of things from <clears throat> from the culture where you were born that you're happy that you got rid of, but are there some parts of that culture that you are missing today? Um, I don't know if missing is the right word, <laughs> because mm-hmm. I think if you use the word missing, then it's why don't you just buy a plane ticket and go to those places that you think mm. Uh, remind you of something that you're nostalgic for. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't do that. I can't just, and maybe this is an individual um, case in myself mm-hmm. because of the threats and other things. And uh, I, 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 I upset my family to the point that I think they're not interested in protecting me. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may even harm me themselves. And so I can't go back home. Um, and part of the, missing of things I think it becomes really relative as an experience when you know that the punishment is so high the price Mm. that you have to pay for it is so high but I miss a sense of community there was this if you live in a clan situation I come from a clan Mm. Uh, Somalis divide themselves into clans and my clan my extended family that was just like this big tub of warmth Mm-hmm. Uh, at its best, not at its worst, not when they're doing the social control. No, of course. But when it, when they're taking care of each other, and you just feel that you belong, and it's a sense of belonging that's very difficult to describe. It, it you take it for granted. It's just there until it's not there, like freedom. Yeah. And there are sights and sounds and smells. There is a sense of humor. There's uh, food and uh, how you make it and how you share it. And these things, yes, I miss those things. And sometimes I wonder, oh, how is so-and-so? What if we could re, uh, reignite or if, if they would let me in into the comfort zone of being uh, within my extended family? Yes. Um, but so that, that really is the truth. Um, we are just living through the age of the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, one thing that keeps coming up is... Uh, a lot of elderly people died in um, in Western countries because they were in care homes. And as a Somali growing up, as a, we didn't know what a care home is. We took care of our elderly. And not only did we take care of them, the older you got, the more respect you got, the more love you got. Yes. Uh, the more you were adored and revered. And I think things like that, I'll say in, in that aspect, Uh, these cultures have something that's wonderful and real and shouldn't be thrown out with the process of modernization or westernization. I don't care what you call it, but it's, 
it, it, it's uh, it's important to see to to navigate both of these cultures because that's the kind of opportunity I hope someone like me would get in a place like Sweden uh, yeah. or Holland or any of these other Western countries where because you live in a free country, no one is really forcing you to give up the most valuable aspects of your own culture. No, but that's that's so true. And, and uh, of course, you are right that the Western sort of very individualized society, we don't really take care of our elders the same way uh, as these cultures that you talk about. So we have lost something in the process maybe of individualization and modernization. I think. Yeah, I think we have taken autonomy to the point where... Um, You become an atom. <laughs> yeah. And uh, my mother-in-law lives all by herself. And I always have this conversation with my husband. Um, do you really think that's okay? <laughs> uh -huh. yeah. And he says, ask her. <laughs> yeah. And she says she wants to live alone, that she can drive, that she can see her friends. And I think there's something, I mean, I understand that. Maybe if I'm in my 80s, I want to do the exact same things. Mm. But, I, uh, you know, then you get something like the pandemic or an accident or you're talking about loneliness. Uh, I think there's a great deal of loneliness if you're in your 80s and you're living by yourself. Um, but that is, that's the culture we live in. And uh, look, again, we have the freedom to adjust it to say come and live with me yeah that's true and that's yeah th that's again what makes i'm not i'm not going to say um, the outcome for the elderly in free societies is negative therefore let's go back in time i'm not going to say that i'm going to say we can adjust in and we can we have financially and morally and socially we can afford to That's very true. That's very true. Um, but tell me, <clears throat> you came to the Netherlands as, as a Muslim woman. When did you start to lose your faith? I mean, your religious identity. And how did that process take place? The process was gradual, very, very gradual. Uh, as I explained to you earlier, you know, avoiding uh, my uh, Somali counterparts or what, what I don't know how do you say my my country mates yeah yeah uh, and and then eventually other Muslims because anybody who reminded me of the fact that I was continually sinning by not covering myself I had cut my hair short and I wasn't covering them those are two big sins and mm. so anytime I had an encounter with a Muslim I felt self-conscious so If you then look at, and then I start obviously having uh, Dutch friends now, that means you are fraternizing with non-Muslims, the infidel. That's another sin. Yeah. And you are, I was spending more time uh, doing non-religious activities, even in my free time, uh, recreational activities like uh, going to the beach and And eventually I even took up drinking wine. And so mm. that was an even greater sin. Yeah. And so this avoidance of being finding myself in circumstances where I would be reminded, you're sinning, you're sinning, you're sinning. And I thought, 
the more I spent, stayed away from that, um, I think the less religious I became up to a point where I was asked in 2001 after I started commenting on the 9-11-2001 attack in the U.S. Yeah. Um, a distant cousin asked me, so what exactly is Muslim about you at this very moment? And that was a good question. And uh, again, I, there is this period of five years, 95 to 2000, when I was attending the University of Leiden, where they had trained us. I took political science and they had really trained us in critical thinking in a, in a major way, in ways that has have changed my personal life, not even my intellectual life, my personal life, where I have to ask myself, when I find myself in a situation of dissonance, okay, is this really what you want? Is this really who you are? You considered the other arguments and other perspectives. And at that point, when 2001 rolled on and I was uh, saying, okay, well, Islam and Islamic culture holds women back and it's authoritarian. And I was asked by a radio interviewer, so are you a Muslim then? And this is in 2002, I believe. And then I couldn't run away from answering that question. I had to sit and reflect on it mm. on my own and reach the conclusion, you know, just a number of the things that frightened me about being a Muslim, that I was going to a barn in hell. Well, if you're going to a barn in hell, let's first see, does hell exist? Yeah. Is there life after this death? Um, and all of these uh, questions, um, the way I chose to answer them in 2002, I thought was liberating. It was liberating. It's all this constant sense of guilt and shame that I had on my shoulders. It disappeared. I felt liberated. And it was, this is happening to me at exactly the same time that um, the Dutch government is surrounding me with bodyguards. And so it's weird, my intellectual, moral um, uh, being was, I felt free, but my physical uh, movement was curtailed because of the threats that followed as a result of that. Because to declare that you are no longer Muslim is the ultimate sin. And then at that point, it is up to your relatives to do something about it. It's the utmost shame. It's the utmost smear on the honor of your family that you have come out as an infidel. Yeah. And so it, it, in a very paradoxical way, I won my mental freedom and I lost my physical freedom. I see what you mean. But I mean, from that, from that point in time, you defined yourself as an atheist or a secular humanist or, or what? All of the above. I mean, mm. I left Islam and I didn't convert to another religion. Um, I joined with um, Christopher Hitchens. Yeah. Whom I miss dearly. Yes, we published uh, his books on Fritanke as well. Yeah, and, and Sam Harris and mm. Richard Dawkins, uh, Daniel Dennett, Lawrence Krauss. There was a whole group of people and we hung out together. Yeah, And some of what I thought was very interesting, uh, and again, talking of books, I do forget uh, 
the name the names of the authors because it's been a long time. But there were some books, biographies, autobiographies of um, very prominent Dutch thinkers who had lived under Protestantism. And they were mentally, not physically, mentally subjected to pretty much the same constraints as I was mm. uh, living as a Muslim. They also felt that they were constantly sinning and that uh, it was all terrible. And the concept of God, who is all, all that this idea of God did was the, the punishing God. You just got punished for every, every little thing, things that you would say, why would God even care about that? Mm. And... Uh, I read some of these books, and the, the, if you're looking for a label, the, uh, it, it's very um, much accepted in Holland to go as a humanist if you don't believe in God or as an atheist. Now, having come to America, the label atheist means all sorts of different things. It's associated with things that were going on in the Soviet Union. Uh, so it doesn't just mean... Uh, there is no God, or I, it's, there's no proof that there is a God, which is, I think, what it's in its most benign meaning. Um, but in, apparently in communist China and in the Soviet Union, people who believed in God were forced to unbelieve. And for them, that's what atheism means. And obviously, I'm not, uh, I don't believe in forcing people's conscience. It's exactly what I, what I escaped and yeah. what I, I think is, is awful is to force people to believe in things they don't believe in. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. Um, yeah. do, do you feel, I, I'm asking this because I'm, I've, I've also been very much involved in the secular humanist movement in Sweden for many years. And uh, do you feel that the secular humanist movement in America is sort of losing losing the track a little bit. I know there was this controversy with Richard Dawkins, with the price, for example. Do you know what I'm talking about? I know exactly what you're talking about, mm. yes. is they, There is a secular movement, and they never call themselves humanists. They call themselves atheists. Mm -hmm. And uh, initially, I was invited to become a part of that. And I thought it was very exciting because it was a movement at this point dedicated to the advancement of science yeah. and reason and objective truth. And regardless of it didn't, skin color and identity and all of these things didn't matter. And I thought it was a fantastic, I still think it's a fantastic initiative. Uh, unfortunately, we have this problem in the US uh, that goes by so many different names, uh, but at its base, um, it is identity politics. Yes. It is the celebration of uh, grievances. And instead of equality of opportunity, they insist on equality of outcomes. And this particular um, association, the Atheist Association of America, you can imagine most of it was made up of white men, white heterosexual men. Yeah. And they got, uh, in this uh, identity uh, uh, cosmos that we live in now, Um, being white and male and heterosexual is something that you should apologize for. And I think the, the leadership within that community were just not strong enough mm. 
to hold on to the foundational principles. The foundational principles, remember, one to just we don't believe in God. It's we're also dedicated to reason. That's what we believe, human reason and human, what the, our common humanity and the freedom of conscience. And I think what went wrong with uh, them um, taking away the award that they had given to Richard Dawkins was that they had abandoned this insistence on the freedom of conscience. They wanted Richard to believe in things that he doesn't believe in, mm -hmm. to stop him from asking questions that he wanted to ask and seek answers to. And then in that sense, obviously, the association makes absolutely no sense. Mm -hmm. It becomes just another religious organization. It becomes just another church. Mm -hmm. I see what you mean. This is really interesting. I mean, the whole trend of identity politics thinking is... I sometimes get a feeling that it has some kind of uh, sect-like psychology. Uh, I mean, cult-like psychology in that. Do you see what I mean? Yes. Uh, yes. And uh, do you see that? I mean, do you see that? Is it going the wrong way in America or is it getting corrected now? What's your sense of that? I find the situation in America alarming. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you asked me this question five years ago, I would have said, oh, no, there's, we don't there, there are a few crazy people on the fringe here and there. Um, but I don't think there's anything to worry about. Now I'm much, much more worried because this um, fetishizing of identity to the point where it gets, uh, it permits everything, everything now is racialized. And uh, it has to do with gender identity, gender fluidity. Um, we have the smallest minority um, in the world. Um, the, the sliver of humanity that are transsexual. But the activism is so virulent that it's about everything. They see transgender discrimination in everything. Most human beings have no clue what that is. And those who do uh, are really open to persuasion to accept transgender people as they are. But now we have a movement that is uh, basically trying to erase women mm. because they don't they don't challenge. Uh, you know, women are described as or the thing that women don't have a cervix, they're people who menstruate, they chest feed and so on. That's not what they're saying about men. Uh, and men saying they identify as women are getting themselves into psychiatry wards for women and prison wards for women. But the opposite is not happening. Mm. In any case, identity politics in America has been taken to a place of insanity. Uh, the, our military is being asked to read Angela, what's her name? The Angelo's book, Robin DeAngelo's book, and Ibram X. Kendi's book on anti-racism. Yeah. Every person who is white in the United States, according to these books, is a racist, whether they like it or not. Mm -hmm. uh, they say they are unconscious, so we must make them conscious. It's insane. Um, and, and it's become, and it's been entertained. These people have been indulged to a point, they are a loud minority, but still a minority. 
but their demands and their whims have been indulged by almost every institution. So in that sense, yes, I worry a lot yeah. about America. But also, I mean, you have also another trend in America with, with all these conspiracy theories, QAnon ideas that seems just as crazy as that. Yes. Uh, so what 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 do you think is the reason for the all these conspiracy thinking that is sort of uh, coming up in America now? I think it's weird. It, the QAnon people that that's even crazier. Mm. Um, the the one thing is that they haven't been legitimized the way the woke have been legitimized. No, that's uh, true. That I think that is the main difference. That QAnon is still seen as exactly what it is: transparently mad and transparently on the fringe. And there is no government institution, cultural institution, or corporate institution in the United States of America that actually implements QAnon policies. No, true. But But we have for the woke policies, what they call DEI, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Inclusion. This is an acronym that's masquerading as something good, um, but it is. This is uh, what I was telling you about: equality of outcomes instead of opportunity. Yeah. And the grievance model. This is implemented by almost all government institutions in America educational institutions, cultural institutions, the corporations, that's the difference. So is QAnon completely nuts? Yes. But how does it influence your daily life? It doesn't. But mm. almost every American will tell you this wokeism, the identity politics thing, it influences your life. Some, it has crept in. You, you have unconscious bias training or unconscious this and that other training all of it just complete utter madness um, and this is coming now from the left it's not coming from the right mm -hmm. so yes you will see studies in america that um, there are there's an increase in white supremacy attempted attacks or plots to to commit terrorism but if you offset it against what the identity politics people are doing It, 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 it's just two different, it's two completely different magnitudes of order. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm more worried about the woke as a force of irrationality and unreason than I'm worried about the far right people yeah, mm, yeah I, i definitely see what you mean okay going back yeah. a little bit to to your time in the netherlands i mean it, th later on you met theo van gogh and made this movie submission right uh, yes what made you what, what 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 kind of situation were you in at that time were you were you in the parliament at that time yes i was in the parliament and before that i was with this think tank called Vieri Beckman Stifting, which is with the Partij van de Arbeid. It's the Social Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. So maybe what the British call the Labour Party. Uh, and it actually translates exactly as the Labour Party. I see. And how and did so you... Come... Was... Sorry, go, sorry, go on. So when I was at the think tank and then, and you know, I was recruited, uh, the Liberal Party recruited me from that think tank. Mm -hmm. 
And at the think tank, they asked me to focus on the integration, the big question, which I think Sweden has now more than anyone else, which is how can we help our immigrants who have been here for decades and are even born in Holland? This is back in 2001, 2002. What can we do to speed up the process of integration? They use the word integration. In America, we use the word assimilation. Yeah. And I, I looked into it, you know, I just graduated and was very much full of these ideas of um, the, the make, the, the, the society that can be made, Markbar, uh, Samali, how would I translate that? Um, society that can be constructed or something like that. So I looked into this and I came to the conclusion, it's the women, look, it's the girls and the women. These girls and women, they're not allowed out of the house. They are not allowed to finish school. They're not allowed to choose who they want to marry. They keep importing the husbands from the village of origin, which is obviously a completely different society from where they come to. So the thing to do is to emancipate these women. That was pretty much my conclusion. Yeah. And uh, happily for me, behind closed doors, the political leadership on the left and the right, they all agreed. They just wouldn't say it themselves. They needed someone like me to say it. So think about identity politics. It was there before it was there. Mm. And so I came out and then I said, and they said, but look, and here's the, the problem that all free societies run into. For Muslim women as a religious minority to be emancipated, the emancipation is not from the government. It's not, it wasn't the Dutch government that was forcing them to do all of these things. It was their own families. And so the government and the society were in this conundrum where they wanted the women to be freed, but they feel themselves compelled to respect the sense of religion and community of the minority. Mm -hmm. And looking back into the history of how European women were emancipated, I thought, well, one way of going about it was to expose these things. So I then embarked on the ambition of wanting to expose what it is that the Quran says literally about women and the prophet's sayings. And I found five verses in the Quran that are unambiguous, that are so misogynistic. Mm -hmm. in, in any language, and I found a translation of the Quran, so many different translations, and they all said the same thing. Beat her, flog her, cover her up, force her into... So I thought, I'll take those verses and I'll have them written on... At, the, at that time, I was thinking of mannequins, of, of dolls. Mm -hmm. But um, I met Theo van Gogh and he said, no, you don't need dolls. We can write this on the bodies of actresses. Uh, I'm a film director. I can make this happen. And so we spent a lot of time, he and my, me and his colleagues, thinking this through. He wanted it all condensed to 10 minutes. He said people don't have uh, an attention span more than that. And also they didn't want, he said, audiences don't like, you know, uh, if things are too sad or too tragic or too dramatic. So let's skip it to 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. So uh, we found the actresses, uh, all of them really volunteered and uh, and, and were of the same background as myself. They had, they were of Muslim background. Yeah. 
but they were convinced that this was something that they had to do. I was convinced, Theo was convinced we were on the right path. We were going to try and uh, try and see how we can achieve changing hearts and minds without using violence and without using government power. We were using the tool of culture, the tools of art to convey this is what happens and this is what it looks like. That was our intention. Um, that was our project. Yeah. But of course, we understood that not everyone saw it that way. And uh, Mohamed Bouyeri, the man who killed Theo van Gogh, made it very clear that he was so offended by the text of the Quran being on the female body than that he cared about the human being and what was being done to human beings. That, of course, was not surprising. It wasn't surprising to me or Theo or any of us that someone like Mohamed Bouyeri would want to silence us all in a very bloody way through the utmost violence, uh, shooting and stabbing and all that. Mm. What surprised me and disappointed me deeply to this day is the fact that the leadership, political leadership, uh, the leadership in the art world in Holland, they made the 10-minute film disappear as soon as Theo van Gogh was killed. They didn't even wait for the funeral or the memorial. It's gone. Mm-hmm. If, if you want to watch submission, you can watch it somewhere in the dark web. Mm. But no one was taking it on or taking it up. This is in the 21st century, not in the 14th century or 15th or 16th. So these countries in Europe that had gone through religious turmoil and had overcome it and had understood the way to overcome it, if you took the methods by which Europeans had overcome religious fanaticism and you apply it today in the 21st century, the, the, the leadership of today is not going to take it on. For how- that, I think, is the most disappointing aftermath of submission and I hope that Theo van Gogh did not die in vain mm. but 20 years on it looks like he did yes how long was the film out before he was killed so to speak uh, how long was that so we aired the film um, at the end of July mm. And he was killed on November the 2nd, okay. 2004. How was the film received before he was killed? I mean, what was the opinions on the film before he was killed? Well, it is obviously, who you who are you talking to? So there was a lot of fear and admiration, mm. uh, even within among the elites. Wow, this is, this is a big, it's a bombshell, this, that, and the other. Um, there were people who understood the, uh, I don't know if you want to call it pedagogical or mm. anyway, they, they got the inherent message. And some people said to me, maybe it's a little too up there, you know, too abstract. Not You have to make it concrete enough for the ordinary people to understand it. And uh, Theo van Gogh was, I think, someone who loved to appeal to that abstract. Mm. And then there were reactions of 
finally it's time, you know, we waited for so long for this thing. We've done it for Christianity. We've done it for Judaism. It's now Islam's time. Let's do it. And we can only do it in a country like Holland where people believe in freedom of speech and expression and all that. And everybody's protected and the rule of law is observed. Yeah. And then I think after the beheading, people quickly changed their minds and thought, wow, mm. this is not something that anybody is ready for. It should never have happened because a life is lost. Now, let me tell you something. That's not what Theo van Gogh intended uh, or I intended. It, it, it's, it, again, it's a tragedy that we gave in to the terrorists, the one individual who decided he was going to use a gun and a knife He got what he wanted. He's in prison, but he won. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. And after the killing of Theo van Gogh, you left Netherlands, right? Of yes. Se- of security reasons. Mm. Well, I- that wasn't really left. I didn't leave. I had to go in hiding. Mm. And um, the... Well, I don't know much, but the reasons, and again, I'm doing this from memory, was it was hard at that point, even before I made the film, I was moving from safe house to safe house. Then we made the film and Theo was killed and this safe house situation was very difficult to continue. It's a very small country. Yeah. Everybody knows everybody else. So... The, the solution at that point was we're going to take you out of the country. So I was taken to the U.S. Um, for about, uh, it, it, I think it was less than two months. And it could have been longer, but uh, I, I said, I want to go back. Mm-hmm. But the main reason was at that point, we didn't know how many Mohammed Bieris were there and where they were active and what they would do. And, you know, it, it was very difficult for the intelligence services to wrap their heads around this uh, religious fanaticism that they didn't understand. They thought maybe it was just some teenagers acting out. They were mostly young men. Mm. They thought this was the kind of thing that was passing. And they were asked to apply the intelligence tools that were used during the Soviet Union to, to this group. And so I think there was this big discussion that the Dutch authorities never had that was forced at that point of what exactly is this problem? How big is it? What kinds of government tools do we apply? So they had that conversation. And I think now, uh, in hindsight, maybe removing me from parliament and having me hide in a in a foreign country is not a solution they would reach today because mm. now they have understood it and they have come to terms with it. Um, there's this gentleman called Geert Wilders. Yes. Who was in the, in the exact same situation. Mm. He refused to be housed in uh, outside of the country. Mm. Um, and he's still alive and well and, and doing what he does. So I think there is a way, where there is a will, there is a way. I mean, it's, it's, it's the awesome powers of the states that we're talking about here. And so if the awesome powers of the state can't face up to Mohammed Bouyeri and his little clique 
what, what else would they face up to? So I think somehow they found a balance there. Yeah. But having said that, I still think the, the conclusion in the Netherlands and elsewhere is uh, don't provoke these people. Yeah. If it takes another century for women's emancipation, let's wait another century. Hmm. You know, and I think that's a pact with the devil. I think that they don't understand that this thing is going to outlive such considerations. Mm. You know, uh, of course, you know that we've had a similar thing in Sweden with uh, the drawings of uh, Lars Wilks. And uh, he has been in hiding for 10 years, I think it is now. And you know that he was killed in a car accident a few days ago. I know. I read that. I was really on the verge of tweeting about it. um, And I'm very, very sad for him and for his family. Yes. And for the people, because there were other people who died in in this accident. Yes, two policemen. Um, two policemen. And I, because the Swedish authorities have not said anything about whether it's purely an accident or there was some foul play, uh, I chose to be quiet and wait until they figured that out and and it comes into the public what exactly happened yes it is it is thoroughly investigated right now and as yet there is no signs of um an attack so to speak so it seems like an accident but they are looking into it very thoroughly now i know so we'll see what comes comes out of it but but i'm also thinking uh, the similarity with your movie submission that when Lars Wilkes made these drawings and um, uh, parts of the sort of uh, cultural elite in sweden were very criticizing him a lot for doing that and others was defending him so we had the same kind of uh, ambivalence the same kind of uh, you know what I mean. Um, being being yes. very careful with what they were saying. Yeah. Yes, and 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 this. Um, I, I remember it very well. The uncertainty. I sat yes. down with uh, different ministers, and each one explained uh, in, I'll say, very in a very responsible way. Um, we're talking about the tools of the state. Mm. And we really, how should we apply, you know, people's telephones were being tapped, right? Because that's the only way that they could understand what was going on. There was all kinds of intelligence material that was being gathered. But how could we use this? And what against? What kind of enemy? How do you define this? With the Soviet Union, it was, I think, properly understood that it was not just a state, but an empire that you were up against. And here it was what seemed like a bunch of unruly teenagers, you know, mm. young men yeah. who had no, they were loosely affiliated. They were not connected with any specific government. It's just an ideology that seemed to be sweeping uh, and taking over the hearts and minds of uh, the minorities and the young men within the minorities. But it didn't, it was so, it was something intangible. And so I think, Ultimately, um, people in the leadership positions, they erred on, let's just use the normal justice uh, system to deal with it. Mm. Um, And 
and then and and we had a memorial for Theo van Gogh, and I was made to disappear. And I think these people hoped that the problem would go away, and yeah. it didn't. No, it certainly didn't. Um, okay, so 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 now you you've written many books, but your your latest book is the one that has just come out in Sweden called Villebrod in Swedish, and uh, you talk quite a lot about Sweden actually in in this book. <laughs> how, how come? Yeah. <laughs> well, first to make your Swedish audiences feel good about themselves, Sweden is an extraordinary country. Uh, it's the one country, I'll say, that has faced the pandemic in the most rational way, hmm. where uh, the outcomes that were expected, the negative outcomes, you know, the lockdowns, the disaster to the economy, loss of life, everything, you look at how every uh, Western country has handled it. And in my view, I think Sweden is number one. Okay, that's because, interesting, because many Swedes would not agree with that. <laughs> Yeah, but I think it's uh, it's very silly because you have to look at a number of factors. You have to look at the, yeah. um, uh, did the economy recover? Yes. Mm-hmm. How much of the freedom of ordinary Swedes were curtailed? Very few. You had to depend on the Swedish population's sense of responsibility mm-hmm. and respect. Did you have do you have a vaccine rollout that you've convinced mo- most of the population to take and yeah. accept? And then the death toll, of course. So if you if you take all of these factors into account, you're going to say Sweden is a champion of a country and a champion of reason. Mm. I do agree, at- actually. I do agree, uh, Ayan, um, personally. But m- maybe with one exception, and that is the elderly care houses yeah. where they got infected in a way that shouldn't have been necessary. I think. Should not have happened. No. And again, we go back to the elderly in in, I think that's a much deeper question. The pandemic brought it to the surface, but I think it's a bigger question. Yeah. I think the way we treat the elderly is uh, disgraceful, and that's an understatement, and that applies to almost every Western country. Yeah. Uh, pandemic or no pandemic. Mm, okay. Yeah, I see what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so Sweden has this, um, I will say, record of just pure reason and objectivity and sobriety the swedish people look at a problem from all sides are reasonable and and they try and hope to achieve the best outcome possible except with immigration you for the last what 20 or so years the swedes have decided to take the most irrational approach to immigration and the consequences of immigration and they have vilified other countries like Denmark and Norway and Holland and France as racist and xenophobic and exclusive. And so Sweden was going to be the exception. And now Sweden has all the problems that are a consequence of that choice. Mm. That is how <laughs> and why I think this paradox of Sweden is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but but also, as I understand it, you 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 think that Sweden is beginning to go in the right direction. It is, yes, yes. In what it's, sense? It's in what going. Sense? Um, I have to. I'm being. Um, I'm being harassed by by um, 
forces here telling me that we've run out of time, but I will say to you, um, things are going in the right direction because, oops. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I think that was a very important question. I'm going to take it again. Okay. Why do you think, why do I think that things may be turning in the right direction in mm. Sweden? I think a number of reasons. Um, Swedish politicians, journalists and academics who used to insist that we had no problem are now asking different questions. They're acknowledging that Sweden has a problem yeah. with the negative, the unintended negative consequences of immigration. They are calling things by their name. They're actually doing what Sweden should have done uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, which was how do we deal with this? And I like that. I think, okay, you made when I say you, I mean you in general, Yes. enormous mistakes were made, human lives cost victims of all kinds, especially uh, sexual harassment, intimidation, and rape victims in Sweden uh, in proportion to the rest of the population is just skyrocketing. So all of these terrible mistakes were made. But now here we are, and... Uh, I think there's uh, uh, this attitude, change in attitude where the Swedes want to have a rational conversation. I gave an example the other day where I said, Swedish journalists used to say to me, Ayan, when you ask these questions or when you write these books, the far right uh, parties and uh, so on, they will exploit your uh, work to make themselves more powerful. Lately, no Swede is asking this question. <laughs> <laughs> That's a change. <laughs> That's a change. <laughs> and you know, every time we say, my assistant says, okay, you're going to have, you're talking to so-and-so, and he's a Swedish journalist, she's a Swedish journalist. I say, oh, okay. Uh, and then I get ready for this type of questioning. They don't ask. They're now at the place where it is really now or never. You're an, at an intersection. You carry on the way you're doing things in Sweden and that's a road to hell or you come back from the brink and i think that has happened mm. and to say what can we do now to face this problem of and you're in a good position meaning sweden mm. that you can learn from the mistakes of other countries look at next door denmark what have they done right what have they done wrong which of these policies can you adopt for yourself austria is another example even france for heaven's sake and France is a basket case. Um, the UK, Australia is a country, I think, if you're looking for answers that you should uh, be looking, Israel and Singapore, mm. two other countries. Uh, so I think right now, if Sweden wants to go exploring what is the best possible solution uh, to integrate, assimilate the, the immigrants that you have, bring down crime, win um, and regain the trust of the ordinary Swedish voters, the working class, have uh, some kind of feminism that makes sense. And that would be a feminism that's carried forward by immigrant women and working class women. I think you have the opportunity to do all of these things. But don't go back to the time when you called everybody racist. That was not productive. 
I do definitely agree. Okay, one last question to you, Ayan. What, what if you sat down with Swedish politicians today? What are the advices, the policy advices, or the actual very concrete advices you would give them? What should they do now? Politicians, I would say, talk to the voters and be honest. Sit down and say, "We are, we are so sorry. We made so many mistakes." I think that way you regain the trust of the public and you can't develop any policies in a democracy without the trust of the voters. So my first advice would be, and the only way to regain it is to admit the mistakes that you made. Look people in the eye and own up to the mistakes that were made over the last 20, 30, 40 years even. The, the, the terrible assumptions that these things were based on, the, um, I mean, own up, be honest. Mm. And, then, and then the next thing in terms of policy was, and you want the voters to give you their blessing and their endorsement is to say, in, 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 policy-wise, we have this number of immigrants in these different co- age cohorts, and we seek to make them a part of the Swedish fabric. Moral fabric, value fabric, norms fabric. That's what our ambition is. To achieve that, I think you in Sweden, you have to put what they call a moratorium on more immigration, unless it is highly selective. Mm. So for instance, if you wanted to rescue women out of Afghanistan, I would say it's still possible to persuade the Swedish public to do that. But to say we're just going to open uh, the borders for quarters of men, young men uh, drifting away from their home countries, I think that's not a way of taking the population seriously. I see. Okay, Ayan, uh, that that will be the final words in the podcast. Uh, Ayan, thank you so much for being in the Fritanke podcast. You are so welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. And uh, I look forward to coming to Sweden. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.